Welcome to season seven of Jesus Has Left the Building. We'll hear from guests all over the country who've been engaging in creative, bold, and fluid, outside the box, I mean, outside the church building practices that have inspired us. Our topic of discussion has emerged out of intersectional feminism, leaning into feminist and womanist practices born out of the stories of women, ancient and modern, and are practiced by and include all people as we ritualize relationship. This is the Jesus Has Left the Building podcast, where ministers, womanists, feminists, activists, scholars, authors, and liturgy makers have left the building too, with Marta and Mandy. Today, we are joined by Kate Eaton. Kate founded Mishka in January of 2010. Mishka is grounded in the beauty and wonder of the tradition, sacraments, and architecture of Anglicanism. Kate brings her experience in directing the arts and music. Since founding Mishka, Kate has partnered with churches, conventions, conferences, and a seminary to share her experience in creating worship environments. Her passion lies in returning to the rhythm of the liturgy and to spiritual practices that have shaped people's lives over centuries. You can learn more about Kate's work at www.mishkahh.com. Today we talk about worship practices and the ways that Kate brings her gifts to the traditional church. Hi, Kate. It is so great to have you with us in this Zoom space today. Um, We're so excited to hear about your work um, and what you're doing in the world. It's it's so interesting, and um, we can't wait to hear more um, about this really creative thing you're doing. So um, we thought we'd start off just asking you to talk about it in your own words, um, the work that you're doing and um, how that kind of, how that came to be, because it's really, um, you know, it's kind of not the standard way of worshiping and being in community. So um, we want to hear how it, how it started too. Well, first of all, thank you so much, Mandy and Marta. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm honored. And um, to begin, Mishka, which is the name of the organization that I founded in 2010, is Aramaic um, for, um, um, uh, oh my gosh, I'm having a moment. Anointing. Anointing. Uh, Oh, thank you. It's been a long day. It's Aramaic (laughs) for anointing. And um, I chose that name because the stone of anointing in Jerusalem, which is in the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, is the traditional site, meaning it's not an archeological site. It's the traditional site where the body of Jesus was taken from the cross and laid onto the stone. And um, uh, pilgrims from all over the world mm-hmm. come, they sort I've of stream through, yes, and they pour oil of myrrh on the stone and then they bring little trinkets, little pieces of fabric, And they lay that on the stone and then take them back for themselves or friends and family. And when I first saw this stone, the fragrance actually is what really hit me. And I thought, what is that? And I knelt alongside some of the other pilgrims and I was just watching. And I saw some people actually put their heads on the stone. Others would just place their palms 
Um, but it was very clear to me that something quite significant was happening here. And so I left the Church of the Holy Sepulcher and walked up the street to some of the little stores. And I asked, um, tell me, why does that fragrance come off of that stone? And a gentleman told me that that is myrrh. And it is obviously one of the spices that the women brought um, to the, uh, the grave um, site of Jesus to anoint his body. And when I learned that, I was completely riveted. And I thought, how do we and can we recreate that experience in our worship services for those who may never be able to travel to Jerusalem, for others who may have been and would love to experience that um, stop, that halting place again. And sure enough, I could buy the myrrh, so I took it home. I got a flagstone out of my front yard, turned over a couple um, flower pots, uh, set it up in um, the cathedral where we were doing the service called the Wilderness, which started in 2007. And we just invited people to come, not knowing if they would. Uh, and they came up in streams and um, they would enter the space. Um, they had little strips of fabric. They would dip that into the oil, pray, and then take it with them. And people were weeping and we were all floored. Um, and even a little bit um, taken aback by the fact that we could create something like this and what did that mean and how do we hold that experience um, with honor and grace and respect. So um, that's really how Mishka began. And, um, uh, and then we went out to other churches. We thought, well, could there be a wider application for this service called the Wilderness, which has been, uh, I guess you could say successful. Um, and we discovered that the same thing could happen in other churches. And it seemed to have a similar flavor, uh, which was this. People would come into the sanctuary, which was dimly lit with lots of candlelight and go on the walking meditation, which fell right into the liturgy. So there was nothing different than the morning. It was the exact same service as the morning. The only thing that we did differently was to take the prayers of the people and open that up for 15 minutes rather than just a few minutes and add um, what I call a soundscape of live music and just invite people to move. And the response was, I've never experienced anything like this. I didn't know I could move around the church like this. Um, I didn't know I could go to the high altar and behind the high altar. So um, I think it was movement, sound, texture, smell, um, time that really made that impact. Mm -hmm. And what, um, what is your, the tradition of the church that you were doing that in, just so that our listeners can kind of make some connections maybe to their own denominations or traditions? Absolutely. It's the Episcopal Church. Mm -hmm. So in, you know, um, it's, it's an interesting thing to think about because um, Marta and I serve uh, 
United Church of Christ congregations. And, um, you know, I think for those people who may not be as familiar with the Episcopal Church or the um, Anglican tradition, like it is a um, much, um, um, I don't know, you, maybe you can talk about formal. it. And yeah, formal it's much liturgy. more formal mm -hmm. um, that the idea of stepping into those spaces was probably pretty powerful for them. Absolutely. And um, I think what I was looking to do when we first started this service was to soften the edges mm. and invite people who have no place of worship or have never thought of themselves as going into a church to welcome them as they want to be welcomed. And what I think we recognized is if they couldn't relate to hymns, they might relate to hymns that were recast with what we call the world music sound. So um, sitting in a bed of Western instrumentation, piano, percussion, vocal, was a Middle Eastern oud um, or a Bulgarian bagpipe or a sitar. So it's not holy world music, but it's it's the it's the Western sound that is then hearing an ancient um, across centuries and continents sound that mm -hmm. enables hymns and prayers to dance in a new way. Because mm -hmm. some of those texts in the hymns are obviously full of poetry and they're some of the most beautiful texts but um, sometimes um, the way that we worship on Sunday morning with an organ um, some people may it may feel like it kind of bounces off of them whereas in this context the words um, start to speak to them and they may not sing they may just listen and that's okay. So we didn't feel that we needed to recreate worship where everybody was singing. That, that was not a goal. Um, instead, it was to allow the improvisation and the um, sort of collective experiences of these highly trained musicians who play out in all kinds of different venues to be there. So um, somebody who's playing in a jazz club, somebody who's playing in, you know, kind of a smoky bar, um, they actually sit in and they're saying to us, this is some of the most creative stuff that I do all week because you're saying to us, we want to hear you and we want to hear your instrument as you would play it in an improvisational way. Mm. So the improvisation sparks something in the air where people may not know that the musicians are improvising, but when improvisation is happening, the air changes, the listener changes because the musicians aren't, they don't know what they're doing. They're not like just playing note by note. They're actually listening to each other and it, it shifts the whole thing. Well, it's actually a little bit of 
vulnerability. And I think when that your um, worship leaders show up in a vulnerable way, it um, invites everybody else to truly show up authentically. I listened to a little bit of your music. It is mesmerizing, by the way, and it is beautiful. Um, and I I can see how um, in in a setting that is crafted for that kind of work, how the music can become um, an emotion and a feeling rather than a performance. Um, and and I do think there is a there is a sort of a big difference between that. It gets away from uh, the Western perfectionism that we are all dripping in and, um, and that idea of patriarchy. Like as you speak, I think you probably do have a lot of men that work alongside you. Oh, yes. um, but, even, yeah. but even you going to that stone in Jerusalem, you picked up on a ritual that, of women of the Bible. Those were women and, and you immediately connected with those women and you're like, oh wait, I need to go back and do this within the container of a tradition that liturgy was created by men. And um, so I don't think it's super explicit in your um, two probably most people um, that you are really actually doing this very intersectional feminist worship um, that um, everybody can access. It's accessible to everybody. You know, there was someone um, in my, in my, um, on my worship team that said, well, you, you've got to explain intersectional feminist liturgy. This is what you need to do. You need to explain it to everybody. And I'm like, well, why? We don't explain our patriarchal liturgy to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> like we don't go around explaining how that happened and how they created that. We just need to do it. It's just a practiced thing that we do. Um, so I, yeah, I just wanted to speak into that because it is, uh, as I watched your YouTubes, I was like, wow, she is really onto something here in it. And it's, it's, it's very contemplative um, and very prayerful. And, but, but because of the practice of it, there is this um, implicit justice to it. It's giving everybody the opportunity to access their own deep well of love and even freedom to be in that place and um, authenticity and vulnerability that we don't get on Sunday mornings. And, you know, I'm sure there's listeners that are out there like, no, Marta, <laughs> we provide that too. Don't worry. It's the same thing. But I don't know. I don't know if it's actually the same thing. I think um, that we can create these containers that are different, that awaken people in different ways. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. There was a gentleman at um, St. John's Cathedral that I thought put it really well. Um, he, he was one of the priests on staff and celebrated um, the, the liturgy on Sunday nights called the wilderness. And he said, you know, if a church can have several offerings, um, Sunday morning, Sunday night, candlelight services, um, meditation circles, um, that's really awesome if, if it's possible because people need these different entry points, mm -hmm. um, you know, to 
to open and be present and and we change don't we over the course of time you know mm-hmm. sometimes we need the the bright lights of sunday morning and you know the coffee hour of sunday morning and other times we need the candlelight of mm-hmm. a sunday night and the chance to go inside and um so i think uh, another friend this was maybe a little bit more clinical but she said this is a spiritual resource that you're offering that has meant a lot to me. And I thought, how interesting, a spiritual resource. I hadn't mm-hmm. you know, thought of it like that. Mm-hmm. So I think you're right. Um, you know, there's, uh, I, I think what has driven me through it all is a desire to help people who feel like they're on the margins. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, either because they don't think they pray correctly or they don't think they know how to pray or that's a big one. That is so Mm -hmm. huge. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. and, um, or they think they're not sure that they have faith, um, or they've been hurt in some aspect of their faith journey. Um, so they've they've got inside and there's maybe a trauma piece there. Um, you know, we also discovered that a lot of pastors were attending and they would make it their Sunday night pilgrimage because they didn't have a place to go for themselves mm-hmm. <laughs> to worship. And I thought, how interesting is that? So I really think, um, as you say, I mean, any one of us, it can have a need to go deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, just one other little uh, vignette for you. Uh, we were asked by the Bishop of Colorado to come to the convention, which happens every year for the state of Colorado. And um, I think it's- the Episcopal Church? Yes, yes. And he, um, they have 110 or so churches. So they all gather in one place and um, he said, would you bring this experience of worship? And I said, sure. And he said, now we're not in a cathedral. We're actually in a um, giant hotel with a big buffet room. And I was like, oh my God. So I thought, well, here we go. So we transformed that room. There were 500 seats in there. And when uh, the music began, I couldn't tell based on the front row how it was going and about 15 minutes into it I really thought wow this may not go over well (laughs) and so if it doesn't okay we've we've brought it here we've tried it and um, about halfway through the service things began to shift uh, and people were coming forward to light a candle and they were visiting the prayer stations And I thought, hmm, I think maybe something might be happening. By the end of the service, um, people, we could not get through the hallways. People were just all over us and all over the priests who were part of this and saying, how do we do this? You know, how did you do this? And and one gentleman said, he had huge eyes with kind of bug eyes, he's a priest, and he said, I have not worshiped like this in 15 years. 
I came to this service angry and frustrated by one of the meetings I had just been in with the diocese. And um, he said, within moments, I was worshiping and kneeling. And, and I remember thinking to myself, this is not us, this is God, you know? Mm -hmm. This is all we're doing is following something in our parts that says, okay, make it multi-sensory, make it tangible, um, dim the lights, um, you know, change the music and let people be. Mm -hmm. That's it. And it's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> so. Well, there's definitely talent in that space. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I, I think that, and that's, that's the work of you of cultivating those people that are ready to lead in that way. So I have another question. Um, as the leader of Mishka, is that how you say it? Yes. As Mishka and sort of the creator of Mishka, I like, I want to know how your process and how, and how, how do you do that? I think that I read um, in one of, maybe it's a little book that Dr. Kelsey gave me, or it's, it was on your website, but um, you create a team to come together to work on themes. Can you talk about that a little bit? So the two years, two and a half years that I was at the cathedral in Denver and was myself on the team, and we had no idea what we were going to do. We just knew it needed to be Sunday nights every week. And our only charge from the church leadership was that it included a Eucharist. So um, I was just happy to hand out program, program booklets. You know, I had no idea what I would be involved in. And as fate would have it, I ended up um, helping with the music and then helping to discover the prayer station idea. Over those two and a half years, we made probably every mistake in the book. There were bodies strewn all over the place. Um, and when I say bodies, I mean willing, eager volunteers who burned out, who got offended. I had never been exposed to the term worship wars. And I was sitting in the middle of those every week. Um, so it was rough. And the only cool piece of it all was that we had somehow, with God's help, created something really special. But we had to do it every week. And we had to make it great. And the more successful that it was, the higher the standards we made for ourselves. And so... What I noticed in those two and a half years with the group of 12 to 15 people who would gather for pizza once every four weeks to talk about the next season of the wilderness were all bright, interesting, varied in age, um, wise. And within 10 minutes, the whole thing devolved to who didn't get the color of fabric that they wanted on the high altar the last season, who really believed that the music was off and should be Teze. Um, I mean, it was, it was unreal. And so as a business person, because I've been a business person for a while, I thought, well, we just have to be strong. We have to say, you know, um, the decision has been made. And that 
color fabric doesn't work. So we tried, we tried that and of course it made it worse. It was like throwing fuel on fire. So after those two years, I, I thought to myself, there's got to be another way. And I thought, all right, if we started with prayer or we started with a meal, can we get ourselves out of this sort of fight? And so I just started thinking and brainstorming and I came up with a four phase process called discovery, preparation, launch, sustain. Mm. Discovery night is um, meant for the planning group to come together and just be and have a discovery box, which includes an Old Testament, New Testament, and poem or reading, and then a wondering object. So we would eat dinner together, catch up with each other. How are you? What's going on? You know? Um, and we told everybody, you're checking everything to do with planning of the service at the door. When you come in this door, none of that's happening. We're just together. The discovery box was to get that group to read scripture together and reflect, sort of like a Lectio option. So a reading from the upcoming season might be the woman at the well. And one person reads it. And then there's a scribe and the scribe asks the group, what did you hear? And somebody might say, well, I heard this man, Jesus, really take notice of a woman whom he would ordinarily as a Jewish man never speak to. Somebody else says, well, that's fine, but I actually, I'm irritated with the fact that, you know, the writer of this particular book is talking about a man, once again, a man. And every statement that happens around that circle is valuable. There's nothing that's said that isn't because that group of people is the microcosm of the larger group of people who are going to be coming to the service. Mm -hmm. So we may have somebody who comes and is like, once again, you know, it's all about Jesus, the man. Somebody else might say, um, you know, I'm really, I'm really taken by the fact that he said, she went back and said, I met a man who told me everything I ever know. Done. So what happens to that small group is their voice is heard. They're surprised by what they're hearing from so-and-so who drove, drove them nuts before in every you know, worship war meeting, they're starting to get to know each other. And then at the end of that time, uh, we stand and say a prayer and we all go home and we do not utter a word. If anybody in that circle starts to say, well, I think based on this reading that we, <laughs> we ought to have the rainbow piece of fabric on the altar because that's representative of us. And then whoever is leading that time will just gently say, thank you. I'll make note of that and move on to the next person. So the whole idea is that there's a night that is sacred for the planning group to just mm -hmm. be together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And 
just quickly, this second phase of preparation is where people get to work, but not as a group of 12 to 15 people, which is what we were doing before. Let's sit here and decide on the music, 12 to 15 people. You're going to lose your minds. So we break up into smaller groups of three or four or two to three. There's one group who does the music, one group who does um, uh, the promotions, another group uh, does hospitality, another group does the poor stations, mm. and another person, another group uh, works on the liturgy. Everybody goes off into their groups and works, and then they meet again. And each little small group says, this is what we've come up with. And it it starts to feel much more like a circle of people mm -hmm. um, coming together. And there will be disagreements, um, but they're not as ferocious because we've started in a place of wonder and discovery and getting to know one another. So that's the preparation stage. That's great, actually. Are there any things, Kate, that you want to say, um, you know, any questions that we didn't ask, things that you'd like to say about Mishka or the work that you're doing um, kind of before we close out? I think the only thing is, hmm, I feel that the time is now, not necessarily for Mishka, but for us as church people, um, and this isn't to say that it, people aren't already doing this, but I just feel it from my own place, that there's such a need um, out there from people to find how, how do I, how do I have food? How do I access this God that you're talking about? Um, you know, who is Jesus? And, and I think we may underestimate how big that need is and that desire and, and therefore kind of pitch small, you know, or, or say, well, well, you know, I mean, I encounter this all the time with the churches that I work with. There's a stop, but I love it message that I get. Come, 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 Kate, help us. Stop, stop, stop. <laughs> and, um, and I really think it's uh, the antidote to that is to somehow get our minds around the idea that the need is really, really great. And if we open our doors, they're going to come because they're looking, they're searching, and it's not that complex and complicated. Mm -hmm. And we don't have to change who we are. We don't have to become, you know, kitschy and interesting and, you know, the latest this. We just need to say, let's believe in what we have, the tradition that we have, the um, simplicity that we have, and, and start offering this beauty. Um, so that would be my only final thought. Well, thank, thank you, you so much for, for this time together. It was so, thank it was wonderful. You. Thank you both so much. It's an absolute pleasure to spend time with you. And I just am so excited about what you're doing. Blessings. Thank, thank you. you. Next week, join us for episode six of season seven. 
It's called My Mama's Preaching with Reverend Malek Thomas. If you like what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, consider supporting the podcast at patreon.com backslash jhltb. This podcast is made possible by the Rocky Mountain Conference of the United Church of Christ Tributary Fund. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and message us to learn how you can be part of this effort to tell stories, have conversations, build relationships, and follow Jesus out of the church and into the world.